Well, we began looking last week, uh, we're building up to Christmas, and we began to look at the Christmas story, but from God's perspective. The traditional Christmas story, and we will read part of that today, really begins in, in, in Bethlehem, uh, uh, in Nazareth, actually, where Gabriel comes and speaks to, to Mary, and then the whole process of by which she and Joseph go down to Nazareth, uh, uh, to Bethlehem, and, and how the baby Jesus is born. But we started back in John chapter 1, verse 14. So let's start there. This is how God sees it from God's side. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So we talked about the first part of this last week. And the Word became flesh. We talked about what does John mean, the Word? And we had to take a whole Sunday on that because it's a term that we associate with physical words, words that are on a page or on a screen like up there, words that like I'm speaking now. So how can words become flesh? Well, we went back and looked at the first two verses, first three verses of this chapter, and we found out the word is a person. And the word is, was with God and was God. The word is the second person of the Godhead. So what does it mean, the Word is a person? Well, we talked a little bit about the, the word, word. And it simply means to express an idea or to express a person. And so really all it boils down to is the second person of the Godhead is the complete and full expression of God the Father. And we talked about the fact that God is a God who expresses Himself, who communicates. And then when God first created man, He created him for that purpose, for a relationship by which God could communicate with man. And that very first man and woman, God could talk face to face with. But of course, when they rebelled against God and they took life into their, their lives into their own hands, it created this separation from God that, that all of everything God's done since then has been to restore to that original communication, that original relationship. And that's why Jesus came. He came to restore that. But He came, first of all, to express to mankind who God was as a Father and who God was as a Savior and as a Redeemer. And we're going to talk about this morning about the process by which He became flesh. And, and we're going to see why that is so important. For some of you, this is a review. You've heard this before, and, and it's important to have this review because, again, the reason we're going through these three Sundays before Christmas and focusing on it is to prepare us to truly celebrate and appreciate all that God did for us by sending His Son to be born in Bethlehem. And that's what we celebrate, of course, on Christmas. So the Word became flesh. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. The Word became flesh. Now, there's a theological term that's used for this. It's incarnation. Incarnation. It comes from in, which means in. <laughs> and carnation is not a milk that you drink, but carnation is the root of it is carne, which means flesh. So what it's referring to is God took on flesh. And so we're going to look at this morning at how God did that and why this is so significant to see how God did this. So, 
God physically became a human being. God of all eternity, the creator of the universe, who dwells in unimaginable majesty and an unimaginable light and glory, so much so that when he does come down here and, and reestablishes everything, it says that all of the creation, will there'll be no sun, there'll be no moon, there'll be no incandescent lights, there'll be no neon lights, that the only light that we will have is the glory that shines from his face. That God, absolutely powerful, absolutely holy, became a human being. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. God physically became a human being. He was fully human and yet fully God. Now, this point is so critical to understand, and I'm going to rephrase that, because I'm not sure we can fully understand it. But it is so critical, it is such a critical point of doctrine, of truth, that this is the very place where Satan tried to destroy the church and still does. Because almost every heresy from the beginning of the church, even up until now, has its roots somewhere in either denying that Christ was a man or denying that he was God. Why? Because the combination that God became a man is so critical to God's plan of salvation that that's the place where Satan attacks the most. So I just want to review just a couple of these to give you some sense of how he's tried to attack that. In the very early years of the church, for the first two or three hundred years, one of, the, one of the doctrines that crept into the church was called Gnosticism, G-N-O-S-T-I-C-I-S-M. Gnosticism, which comes from a Greek word which means to know or have knowledge. And there was a lot of things included in that. But the very root of it is, was this, that, that it was called a dualism, that you have the spirit realm and you have the material realm, and the spirit realm came from God and is holy, and the material realm came from Satan and it's unholy. So because of that, there could never be a connection between the two. So God could never have taken on physical, actual, touchable, smellable, tasteable human flesh because that would make him unholy to do that. So here's what happens when you, have to st- when you start deviating from God's truth. You have to start making things up. So, so what they did is they said that, all right, God became a, God, God took on this form and, and he had a body, but it wasn't a physical human body. It was another type of body and it never actually touched anything. So it, it, where, where his feet would walk, it looked as if his feet were on the ground, but they weren't really because there was a tiny little separation that kept it from going. That's just stupid. But they have to do that in order to deny that God really became a human being. There was another version of this called Docetism, D-O-C-E-T-I-S, and there won't be a quiz on this afterwards. 
And that was that his body really wasn't human at all. It just had the illusion of being human. So they have to deny that he really ever became a human being. On the other side, and, and so much of the Apostle John's writings are aimed at this. You, if you, we, we looked last week, we're not going to look this morning, but at the beginning of the letter of 1 John, he talks about this word from God, we saw, we handled him. In other words, we touched him. So we know he was a human being because we touched him. And much of his writing is aimed at this. But then you have other heresies, other religions, most of the major religions of the world go on the other side, and they may admit he was human, but they deny he was God. So you get many of the major religions acknowledge that he was a great prophet, and he was a good man, but they deny he was the Son of God. There's a little sidetrack here. But you see, Jesus doesn't give you that alternative. Jesus doesn't give you the alternative to say, yes, he lived, but he wasn't the Son of God. And he was a great prophet. He was a wise man. He, he taught wonderful truths, but he wasn't the Son of God. Jesus doesn't give you that option. Why? Because Jesus said he was the Son of God. So if Jesus said he's the Son of God and he's not the Son of God, there's only two alternatives then. Either he was a liar or a fool. And if he was a liar or a fool, then he was not a great prophet. So he either is who he says he is, or he's a liar or a fool, but he can't be a great man and a great prophet. But the major religions of the world want to acknowledge that he existed and that he said good things, but they deny who he is. So that's one of the reasons this is so important for us to spend some time on. Now let's talk about how God did this. How did he become flesh? God can do anything he wants. Well, no, he can't do... <laughs> I don't want to get off on that. God can't do, any, can't do everything. He can't lie. He can't change. So there are some things God can't do, but they're, they're, it's because they're totally contrary to His character and nature. But God can create what He wants to. So if His, if his plan was for the second person of the Godhead to become flesh, for the Word to become flesh, He could have just had Him appear in the hills of Galilee and just show up one day in Jerusalem. He could have done that. I want to spend some time today to show you how God did this, and why He did it this way, because the ultimate purpose for this series is for you and me to see to what extent God went out of His love for you and me. He could have done that. He could have accomplished this by... Well, He couldn't. We're going to see later on. But just having the Son show up as a human being in Jerusalem in the temple one day. Just walk in, apparently out of nowhere. But he didn't choose to do that. He chose to have his son enter humanity the exact same way you did and I did. In order for his son to become a 
human being, God took no shortcuts. He did it to the fullest possible extent so that He could completely identify with you and with me. Now, we're not going to have, we're not going to have a, 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 a biology lesson here today because I'm assuming you all know physically what happened between your parents to produce you. And what happened is you were conceived in your mother's womb. When your father's seed and your mother's egg were joined together, your life was created, by the way, it was created at that moment. And we're not going to get off on that, but it was created at that moment. You were a living human being the moment those two sources of life came together. So let's look at how God did this. We're going to go now to look what God said ahead of time He was going to do. Isaiah 7.14 Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. That's a signal. That's to show something. What? Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call His name Emmanuel. So the sign is a life is going to be conceived in her womb in a way that couldn't possibly happen unless God did it. Because you just, ladies, you just can't get pregnant on your own. And Mary didn't get pregnant on her own either. We're going to look at that in a minute. So it's a sign that a virgin is going to conceive and bear a son and his name shall be called Emmanuel. And in Hebrew that means literally God with us. So this was to be a clear supernatural act of God to demonstrate that this was God in the flesh. That this son came from God because he came in a way that cannot happen in normal human terms and under normal rules of nature or the operation of nature. Now, here's a little biology lesson and I'm not an expert in this by any means. But biblically, biblically, the, the male seed brings into that union the identity of that child. The female's egg brings the physical characteristic of it. So what's going to happen is, what's going to get conceived in Mary's womb, well, I'm getting ahead of myself, Okay, let's go to Luke chapter 1. This is now seeing the fulfillment of what we just read. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth. Next verse. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. So they're engaged, but they're not married yet. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. Verse 29. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, I guess I might be too. (laughs) I mean, first of all, just have an angel show up in your bedroom. Almost every time an angel shows up with somebody, uh, in the Bible, they fall down and they, they, they get afraid. And she was troubled at the saying, considering what kind of greeting was this? What are you trying to tell me? 
The angel said to her, Do not be afraid. Why? She must have been afraid. Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, it's going to get better for her, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. Now stop there a second. Several years ago, actually for several years running, we, we, had a, we did a, a play here based around this whole, what this must have been like to her. I mean, we read this and said, an angel appears to her and said, Behold, you're going to conceive, you have favor with God, and you're going to conceive, and you're going to bring forth a son. And when we look at that, because we say, yes, that's Jesus coming into the earth. That was not, that's a startling news to her, because especially in her society. Now, nowadays, the rules have been so relaxed, it's, it's not considered any kind of shame, which is wrong. But... But in our society, you would either could, you could be stoned for being pregnant out of wedlock. And her society, not only that, she is betrothed to Joseph. Under biblical law, he would have a right to put her away. I mean, they would just shun her, either stone her or just shun her out of the community. So this, this message to her, wow. I just got another whole series out of that. This message to her, imagine the faith it took, this little girl, she was a teenager, to be told something that as her mind began to click off, maybe not right away because of the, 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 the supernatural presence of this angel and the honor that's being bestowed upon her, But have you ever had God show you something and you get, yeah, all right, and then your mind starts kicking in of what this might mean? Especially if God speaks to you about giving an amount that's beyond what you might normally give. Oh, wow, Lord. I remember years ago in the small church that you and I had years and years ago in another part of, the, of, the, of this region, Uh, we had a Wednesday, Sunday, Wednesday, Sunday night service back then, and uh, we had an, uh, um, an evangelist uh, was just sitting in the crowd, and he has a tent ministry. And we're, I'm talking about giving and how God will supernaturally provide for you as you give. And right in the middle of the message, I felt the Lord tell me, tell them that in one month, this congregation, and it was a small congregation, is going to pay off the debt he owes on that tent. I had no idea how much it was. I had no idea what we're talking about. I just was full of the Holy Ghost at that point, and I said that so boldly and confidently because I know God said me. I got home that night and couldn't sleep. <laughs> what did you just do? I mean, find out how much it is. So that's what she may have gone through. It's like, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and I'm going to tell you what his name's going to be. It's going to be Jesus. Now, Understand this, Jesus is the English, Engli the Americanization of, of the word that's really there, which is Joshua. And there are many Joshuas in the Bible. But the Hebrew word is Yeshua, and I'm sure you've heard that before. And what Yeshua means, Yeshua means is that God, Jehovah saves, Jehovah saves. So what he's explaining to her, oh, let's go on, verse 32. He will be great and be called the son of the most highest. And I'm beginning, I bet it's beginning to dawn on her, he's talking about the Messiah, because they all knew the Messiah was coming. 
Every Jew was looking forward to the day the Messiah was coming. When, when Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day after he was born and they brought him to the temple and you had Simeon was there and, and uh, um, I've forgotten, the, Hannah the prophetess was there and, and they both, they were waiting for the, to see the Messiah come. So she understood who the, the Son of the Highest was referring to. He will be great and we called the Son of the Highest. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. That again refers to the Messiah. Verse 33. For, for, yeah. And Mary... Yeah. Nope, go back. I'll read it to you. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Again, this is... Messianic language. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, can you just imagine? Yeah, well, this is great. But wait a minute. You've overlooked a small biological detail here. How can this be since I do not know a man? I've never had a physical, intimate relationship with a man. How can this be? And Gabriel's going to give her God's answer. The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. What he's literally saying there is God's Spirit is going to come and He is going to impregnate you. He will bring the male seed which will bring the characteristic and the nature of this child and you will contribute the physical part of it which becomes His body. So this is where God literally becomes man. The God part comes from God's seed and the human part comes from her egg. Did I lose anybody there? All right, we'll just keep moving on. And there it will overshadow you and therefore also the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. The whole point here is God conceived in her womb the same way you were conceived in your mother's womb, except the male seed didn't come from a human. It came from God, which is why it could be, he could be God's son. So let's look at this from what that son had to give up in order to be conceived in her womb. Philippians chapter 2. Let this mind be in you also, which is in Christ Jesus. Go ahead. Who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Let's, let's hold there a second, because that's a way of wording things that can be a challenge to us sometimes. What he's saying, it's a double negative. What he's saying there is, is if he were to claim that, that being equal with God... He's not stealing something he's not entitled to. So if, you, if somebody robs you, it's they've taken something from you that they're not entitled to have. So what Paul is saying there is for Christ to claim that he was equal with God, he wasn't taking something he wasn't entitled to. In other words, to simplify it down, he was equal with God. Verse 7. But he made himself of no reputation. Stop there a second. In English, that doesn't quite say what it really says in the Greek, which was, this was originally written to in. The Greek word there is the Greek word kino, not the game they play online. But it, it means to, 
take a vessel and empty it out. It's like if you ever go through the TSA line and the beep goes off and they say, empty out your pockets. And I find, you know, there was 25 cents in there I forgot I had or something like that. And you got to empty, whatever was in there, you empty out and put it somewhere else. So that's what that word means. To make of no reputation doesn't mean just he wasn't going to be referred to with the honor that he was referred to. What did he do? What did he empty himself of? He emptied himself of all the divine attributes he had by being the second person of the Godhead. He, he, he didn't empty himself of his nature and his character. He emptied himself of his glory. He emptied himself of his power. He emptied himself of all... Because remember, we saw last week that everything that God created in this material realm, it, it was created by this second person and through the power of this second person. So what he set aside is the power that he had by which the universe was created, and he sets it aside. That in and of itself is amazing. Imagine to have that much power at your disposal. To be able to come here and just do whatever you want to do. But he set aside. What I want you to see this morning is how far God was willing to go to redeem you and me. He set it all aside. He's still divine, but His glory, His majesty is set aside. John 17, verse 4. The next verse you should have. Now we're looking at the end of his ministry, because I want to show you something here. This is again in that prayer that he prayed to the Father right before he was arrested. At the very beginning, he said, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you gave me to do. Now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself. Look at this. Which the, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. At the end of his ministry, he's asking for the Father to restore him back to him what it was he emptied himself out of when he was conceived in Mary's womb. It went on to say in Philippians 2.8 that he, he had the appearance of a man, but that refers to his physical body which was like yours, ours. So for 30 years... He's, he grows up in Mary's... He's born. He grows up for 30 years in, in, in Nazareth without anything remarkable about him other than his character and his nature because we know he never sinned. But he didn't do any miracles. There's no record that he did any miracles when he was 10 years old. There's no record that when his brother James stubbed his toe, that Jesus laid hands on him and his toe was instantly healed. There's no record of anything like that. And there's a reason for that. And then at 30 years of age, when he was going to begin his public ministry, he goes to the Jordan River where John the Baptist is baptizing, and he comes to be baptized by John because he was being obedient to what the law required. Here's the Son of God submitting to the law. And when he did, the heavens opened and God the Father spoke 
and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then the Holy Spirit descended upon him, it says, in bodily form. And then God, Jesus began to do his ministry. Because the glory Jesus walked in for his three and a half years was not the glory that he had in heaven. It was the Holy Spirit working in him. You see, Jesus was a prototype of what it means to be a child of God filled with the Holy Spirit. He didn't have any special advantage that you and I... What, what are you? You're a child of God filled with the same Spirit of God. So He didn't take any shortcuts. He came to be so identified with us, listen, that He could give what He had and what He was to us to share with Him. So you're seated, not next to Him in heavenly places. You're seated in Him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. i got to move on. i got to move on. So His body, His physical body, was just like ours. Now God was subject to the same limitations that you and I are subject to. They don't mean much to, doesn't mean much to us because we've lived with them our whole life. But imagine, he, 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 he was now limited to being in one place at one time. His, his body, when it came forth from Mary's womb, the Son of God had to be cared for. That just what God entrusted. His Son's care to a teenage girl and a teenage boy. If they didn't feed him or take care of him, God's plan, there's no plan B. They had to change his diapers. That blows most religious thinking right out the window. (laughs) And he had to grow up and learn. The Bible says he grew in wisdom and understanding. He had to learn who he was as he grew up, just like you and I have to learn who we are, the same way he did, as he read the scriptures, there was a witness that would go off in him, that's you. These prophecies he'd read, he says, that's you. Well, that should go off in you when you read who you are in Christ. You'll discover who you are the same way he does. He took no shortcuts. Hebrews 4, 15. For we do not, there's another double negative, we do not have a high priest, in other words, we do have a high priest, who can sympathize with our weaknesses. I think the New American Standard says, touched with the feeling. I like that better. Touched with the feeling of our weaknesses. Why? Because he was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. So I want to explain to you, he had the same kind of body you did. He may have looked better than you do. (laughs) or better than I do but it was the same kind of body with one difference one difference his body just like you and me was susceptible to temptation we know that for a number of reasons first of all the very first thing that the Holy Spirit led him to do was to go into the wilderness to what? be tempted by the devil Well, if he couldn't be tempted, there was no test there. To be tempted by the devil. And yet it says here, without sin. Here's the difference. His flesh 
was capable of yielding to sin. But it didn't have that tendency. You and I were born with a flesh that came that had that tendency. The best example I can use, I can think of for me to use, is if you've ever, uh, if you buy a new car, when they make that car, they design the wheels to be in a specific alignment. And there's a number of details to that. So that when you drive down the road and you take your hands off the wheel, which you shouldn't, it should track straight. That's how the manufacturer designed it. You can jerk the wheel and get off course if you want to, but it doesn't take a lot of effort to do that in a, in a car where the wheels are perfectly aligned. But you drive that car around in New England for a winter, there, there's some manhole covers on a street that I drive in that hate me. I know it moves when I... because I go, try to avoid it, and I'm sure it must move because I seem to hit it every other time I go by it. And then he says, why does it bother you? I says, it's going to put the wheels out of alignment. So if you've driven a car for a while in New England or you bumped in some curbs trying to park, you'll find out it won't exactly track straight. It's now gotten out of alignment. But you can overcome that, especially with power steering, by turning against it. But it's always pulling you one way. That's what your flesh and my flesh were like. Our flesh was born out of alignment. And when you're saved and you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you get a power steering to keep it back. But you've got to pay attention because if you lose your attention, you'll begin to drift. But Jesus was born with His wheels in perfect alignment and He never let them bump the curb or hit a hole. So what does this tell us about God? We're going to look at three things quickly. The enormity of how far He was willing to condescend Himself to redeem us. Remember who we are to Him. Romans 5 says we were His enemies. Nobody sought after Him. The Bible says that. If you sought after Him, it's because He first sought you. We were all in rebellion against Him. Why? You say, well, I wasn't rebellious. Well, you just did. Because <laughs> whenever you want to assert yourself in any way, defend yourself, promote yourself, that's rebellion against the God who created you. Not only that, we offended Him regularly. We didn't honor His commandments to love the Lord your God with all our heart. We still don't. With all our soul, with our mind, and our, love our neighbor as ourself. We didn't live under that. We loved ourselves more than God and more than our neighbor. And yet, he went through what we just talked about. His love he, was, he came totally dependent to care for us and to raise us up. God's love, the kind of love that God has for us, 
is a love, this is so important to get, this is the essence of everything. The nature of God's love is so different than the nature of human love. The nature of God's love is I will come and I will become identified with you. I'll become one of you so that I can take all of your weakness. I can take all of your rebellion. I can take all of your rejection of me. I can take all of your offense at me. I can take that and I'll have it born on me. Isaiah 53 says, He was despised and rejected of men. Jesus experienced the rejection of men as a human being so that He could take that sin on Himself, literally experience it Himself, so that we could be redeemed and set free from the weight of it and the guilt of it and the eternal punishment for it. God's love saves and redeems by taking on Himself, by taking on Himself our sin and the full weight of the curse and the burden that comes with it so He could bear it away for us who still reject Him and offend Him. His love takes our offense against Him and takes it on Himself so He can pay for it for those who offended and rejected Him. Ephesians 3, verse 14. I pray this over and over again for me, for you, for our family, and I want to show you something in here. For this reason, Paul says, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Keep going, verse 15. From whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Keep going. That He would grant you, now look at this, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man. Stop there a second. Paul's saying, Father, in order for them to grasp what I'm praying, you have to have the Holy Spirit strengthen them to be able to grasp the enormity of what I'm praying for them. Wow. Accord, that Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith, might live in you, live through you, being rooted and grounded in love. This is what I want to get through, verse 18. You may be able, they may, that's us, may be able to comprehend, grasp, or understand with all the saints, look at this, the width and the length and the depth and the height. And now he's talking about the limit, how far Christ's love is willing to go. Some of you are so far out there that you are beyond anyone's hope, anyone's expectation that he could ever love you. But his love went out to you. Some of you were so deep in sin and bondage, so close to the gates of hell, that you didn't think, nobody could think, you could, why would Christ ever love me? But His love has no limit to how far down He will go. Or how far high He will go. We sometimes forget those that are high and mighty. I used to work with them in law firms very intelligent, very smart, very proud, very wealthy, very much, very high in prestige, and just as lost. Just as bound up, in fact, in some ways more bound up, because they didn't know they were bound up. 
I got to move on. This love is so far outside of our thinking that it takes the Holy Spirit to show us the breadth and length and height and depth. Now go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7. There's a little verse in here most people don't pay much attention to. He's talking about the wisdom of God against the wisdom of the world. He says, but we speak a wisdom of God in a mystery. It's hidden wisdom from God, which God ordained before the ages of, for our glory. He's talking about exactly what we're talking about this morning. Verse 8. Look at this. Which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Stop there. I believe what Paul's saying there is God outsmarted the devil. Because God's plan, that kind of love was so far beyond anything Satan could ever begin to imagine that God might do that he fell into the trap. Because I believe that when Jesus was arrested and was tried, which was illegal, and he was hanging on that cross that Satan believed he finally had him. And then when he saw that God had put the sin on him, now Satan had a legal right to pull him into hell. There's scriptures to show you that I don't have time to go into. So I believe Satan was convinced that he'd won. Because he couldn't understand. Because he'd seen Christ in all his glory. He'd seen the Word before he became flesh. He'd seen God in his glory. And imagine that, 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 that God could humble himself to that point was beyond Satan's ability to grasp. And that was the very trap. His pride, his arrogance, his selfishness is what trapped him. Because when the price was paid for all of this... Remember, remember Jesus didn't just die for you. He took the weight of the sin of the world on himself. And he didn't deserve any of it. But when the price was paid, the Spirit of God came forth into the place of death and made him alive in the place of death. And I can just imagine Satan screaming, this is not right, this is not legal. I legally have him here because he died in sin. And the Lord looks at him and says, yes, but none of that sin was mine. I'm out of here. So that means he died carrying your sin. He took your sin to hell for the judgment and punishment. But when he left, he didn't bring it with him. He left your sin in hell where it belonged. But see how far he was willing to go for you. And the third point is he had to become human so he could experience death for us. Because the punishment for sin is death. Somebody had to die for our sin. And the only way God could die for our sin is he had to be a human being that was subject to death. I believe this is why, remember, in the, because you remember because you weren't there, neither was I, I'm not that old. But when, when, when Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden 
and God put an angel there with a flaming sword. I asked him one day, why did you do that? He says, because there was another tree in there that they could have eaten of, and that was the tree of eternal life. He said, if they ate of that tree in the state of sin, listen to me, they would never have died. They were never subject to death, which means they would live eternally in sin. And if they couldn't die, I couldn't die in their place. So in the very beginning, God was preserving for us the ability for God to redeem us. I'm going to close by reading Hebrews chapter 2. I encourage you to go through Isaiah 53 sometime. I was going to read that originally, but there's not enough time. Hebrews, we're going to start in verse 10. For it was fitting for him for whom all things, uh, for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things. We talked about that last week. In bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect or complete through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and those who are being sanctified, that's us, are all one. He he identified with us. For which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren. Go down to verse 14. Inasmuch then as the children, that's us, have partaken of flesh and blood, since we wear humanity, he himself likewise shared in the same. Look at this, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through the fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid or help to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham, that's us. Therefore, in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that's us, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make the propitiation for our sins. For that in that he himself was, has suffered being tempted, he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. What we've talked about today sounds so much like Easter. But Christmas has no significance of itself without why He came. But I wanted you to see today the extraordinary extent that He went to, that He went through, so that He could identify with you. And then in that identification... Take all your weakness, all your sin, everything that separates you from God, not just then but even now, and take it on Himself that He might bear the punishment for that so that you and I could be set free. We've talked a lot over this year about bearing one another's burdens. That's because He bore our burdens in Himself. Let's pray. Father, we've heard the word today. We've seen your scriptures. And I pray now that your spirit would take what only he can do to take the seed of the word that's been sown into our hearts and into our minds and begin to water it and develop it. That it will begin to produce in our hearts an awareness and a depth of appreciation of the love that you have for us so that we could never fear again. We could never doubt again. We could never question again where you are or what you're doing when we see how far you came and what you were willing to do for each one of us. For your word teaches us that if you, only one of us, if it were just me that needed you to do this, you still would have done it 
just for me, just for each one of us personally, individually. Father, as we continue in this season of Christmas and all the busyness that it involves and all the other things we have to deal with now, may we learn to rest in. May we learn to rest in the love of God that's been given to us in Christ Jesus. And Father, strengthen us with your spirit in our inner man that this Christ may be able to live in us and through us. That being rooted and grounded in this kind of love, we may come to know together with one another the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that passes human understanding that we may be filled up with all of your fullness. Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we can ask or think according to the power that works in us. Be glory in this generation, through all generations, through your church, through Christ Jesus.